So we're going to be back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. And with that, Shay is going to read for us. So um, we'll need a mic. And Shay, come on up. She's going to read. We're going to go through the whole chapter, but she's just going to read uh, verses 1 through 11. So if you would, as is custom, will you please stand as we honor God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, please play with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for Joseph's story. Many of us, it's familiar to us. We, we know this story. And it speaks to us every time we read it to hear of your goodness to Joseph in the midst of such hatred from his own kin. Lord, it's just a, a, a symptom of, again, living in a world that has fallen. Envy, jealousy, hatred. Uh, that seems to be one of the cultural norms that crosses over every country, every people group. And Lord, we know that you address that. You address envy, jealousy, and hatred, but your son and his great love for us, that he came and, and lived and died and rose again so that we could take hatred and squash it. We could kill it with the love of Christ. Not be jealous of one another, but we could encourage one another. We could, with the Spirit in us, and, 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 and induce, uh, encouraging one another to success. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. May it minister to our hearts in the season of life that we are in, to know that no matter whether we are on green pastures or if we're in the valley, that we can see in the life of Joseph that you are with us. You are with Joseph and you are with us this morning. And that is good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, go ahead and be seated. As I said, we're going to start back in the book of Genesis. We've been going 
through, usually line by line, paragraph through paragraph, chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis. We took off for the summer for the Sermon on the Mountain, and we're going to be back in on Genesis 37, 1 through 36. And let me just give you a brief summary of, of the first 36 chapters. We, we know that Genesis is split into two parts. In, in chapters 1 through 11, we see uh, this uh, good news of God working out the covenant of redemption to the, to the nations. And then when we hit chapter 12 through 50, he zeroes in on a single family. He zeroes in on a single family, and they are to be the torchbearers of the good news of salvation, this covenant of redemption. And it started with this guy named Abraham, Father Abraham. And Father Abraham had many sons, as we know. And so we see that God, as he takes this family, um, we would think that this family is like off the charts holy, you know, never sins, is perfect. But what we found walking through Genesis 12 through 36 is it's, they're pretty dysfunctional people, right? They got issues. They got problems. And yet, God still uses them. And we see that with Abraham. We see that Abraham's summary of his life, we could say that Abraham is, is defined by faith, but also failure. And then he passes the torch to his son, Isaac. He becomes the next patriarch. And, and Isaac is kind of like that middle son, right? He's kind of the middle patriarch. You have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's a middle man. He doesn't get much love in the book of Genesis, right? He only gets a couple chapters. Abraham gets chapters basically 12 through 25. Isaac gets basically six chapters, 21 through 27. So we pass through uh, Isaac real quick. But he's, he's, a, he's a solid dude. But then we get to Jacob. Then we get to Jacob. And we spend a number of weeks, basically Genesis 25, chapter 25 through 36, talking about this guy named Jacob. And what do we know about Jacob? Jacob's a weasel, right? He's a con man. Uh, He's got problems. He's got aspirations. He's got ambition all for himself. He he tricks his father Isaac and his brother Esau to, to steal the blessing from him so that he could have it. Jacob is a piece of work. And yet, God says, this is my guy. This is my ambassador to, to share my covenant love to the whole world through Jacob. And if we could summarize Jacob's life, it would be grace. Grace is what summarizes Jacob's life. And this morning, we come to really the final chapter in the book of Genesis, the last quarter of the book in Genesis 37 through 50. And the main character is, is, a, is a son of the patriarch Jacob, and his name is Joseph. He's the 11th son out of the 12 that Jacob has. And what's interesting is is Joseph gets more ink than the creation account. We think, man, the creation account's got to be a a massive deal, a big deal, right? How the world came into being, how you and I came into being. And yet, Joseph gets more ink than that. He gets more ink than the recreation, the flood. He gets more ink than Abraham, the father of our faith. He gets more ink than Isaac and Jacob. In fact, 25% of the book of Genesis is about this guy, is about Joseph. It's crazy, but why? Why? I think there's two main reasons, and these two main reasons will be kind of the track that we'll be riding on over the next several weeks. These will be kind of the 30,000-foot view of which will guide us. First is that Joseph's life points us to Jesus. More than probably any character in the Bible, you can make the argument that, G, that Joseph points his life to Jesus. Everything that happens in his life points us to Jesus. As we study the life of Joseph, we will hear the echoes, we will hear the echoes of Jesus' life in his own. Some say there's over a hundred examples of Joseph's life pointing us and connecting us to Jesus. 
So that's number one. Number two is to show that you and I, in all things, that God is fully in control of history, world history and individual history. He is working out his perfect plan of redemption to put the serpent crusher Jesus on the throne to save and glorify the church through his resurrection. Another word for this would be the providence of God. That'll be another main thing that we will be walking through. One of the rails is the providence of God, that God is orchestrating, controlling all the world's events, not only at the grand 30,000-foot view, but even down to the nitty-gritty of your life and my life. God is in control. He is moving and working His plan of redemption through you and me. I love how one said this. One said this way, Joseph's life is a picture of what it looks like to live with the assurance that God is with you. And what's neat is you can take Joseph's name, you can take that out, and if you are in Christ, you can put your name in there. So you have this hope. So instead of Joseph's life, it's Aaron's life. Or your life is a picture of what it looks like to live with the assurance that God is with you. I don't know about you, but that is excellent news. That is excellent news for you and for me. Like Joseph, God is with you. Uh, when things and when life is going great, we'll see in a couple weeks in Genesis 39, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. So when life is going well, God is with you. But also, if you're in a valley, if you're in a trial, if you're struggling right now, He is with you. Genesis 50, 20 says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So these are going to be the two rails in which we're going to run on over the next several weeks through the book of Joseph. So let's, <clears throat> excuse me, through the book of Genesis. So let's look into the life of Joseph. Number one, first we see the invisible hand working through hatred, verses 1 through 11. The invisible hand working through hatred. Look at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. This, this little phrase, these are the generations, you've been with us since Genesis chapter 1. We know there's, there's 10 of these little phrases, these little summaries. They're called the Toledots. And basically what it does is it encapsulates from, from this time on, these are the generations of the story of Joseph. It's going to focus on Joseph. And as we already said, if, it, if faith characterized Abraham's life, and if grace characterized Jacob's life, then we can say that providence could be used for the theme of Joseph's life. One of my favorite books, did I bring it up here? Yep. One of my favorite books, and I would just, I would just invite you to get this book, is this book by R.C. Sproul called The Invisible Hand. And the subtitle is, Do All Things Really Work for Good? This is a book about providence. This is a book about what Joseph is going through. This is a book that has helped me, uh, I mean, it's one of the top five, it's helped me get through life and the, and the highs and lows, the ups and downs. It, it, it helps me uh, make sense of this world and what's happening in this world as a Christian, as someone who's following Jesus. So I would commend this book to you. And it's called The Invisible Hand. And you're going to hear that phrase over and over again through this series because to me it's that one mechanism that when life is going, I, I have this phrase, The Invisible Hand, where I, where I say that to myself and I can see the Lord working. So The Invisible Hand by R.C. Sproul. You should get it. But providence is defined as this. Providence means that God takes ordinary events in the world and in individuals' lives, and arranges them to bring about His desired end. That's what providence is. That's what we're going to see throughout. It means that God takes ordinary events in the world and in the individual's lives and arranges them to bring about His desired end. What does that say? It says the Lord God, the one that we serve, is personal. He's intimate. 
not only with the world, but more importantly, with you and with me. Our lives matter to him. They matter so much that he is working his plan through me and you. This is what the providence of God is. This is what we see come to pass over and over again. God's invisible hand guiding the situations behind the scenes in Joseph's life. And as we look at Joseph, I want you to reflect on your own life and see how God's invisible hand is working in your life, his providence. Well, first we see that God's individual hand is guiding through the hatred of Joseph's brothers here in verses 1 through 11. Through the hatred of Joseph's brothers. We see in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, we see that it talks about Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. And we see each time it's mentioned, this hatred grows. It intensifies. Why? Well, I think the answer is in verse 3. The main reason why they hate their little brother so much is found in verse 3. Now, Israel, that's basically Jacob's name. God renamed him in Genesis 35. Israel loved Joseph more than his brothers. That's, That's why his brothers hate him. That's why there's envy, there's jealousy, because Jacob, Papa, Daddy, loves Joseph more than all of his brothers. If we were, if we were to see Jacob and his, and his family out, you know, down in Old Town, and we come up to him, Jacob would say, hey, this is, this, is my, this is my son, this is my son Joseph, and here's the other 11 right over here, right? That's what he would do. That's how he introduced us. They would feel the weight of that. Now, you would think, knowing and reminding our study, that, that this would, shouldn't be and wouldn't be the case with Jacob. Why? Because he felt this same strife between his brother and his father. If you remember Isaac, Isaac favored Esau, the older brother, and Rebekah, the mom, favored Jacob. And you can see, we saw that, that in Jacob's life, he was always maybe trying to, to gain the, uh, the, the knowledge of his dad. He wanted his dad to notice him, but but Isaac's eyes were on Esau. If you guys remember, Esau, again, was daddy's boy. He was the man's man, right? You remember that? He was the man who shopped at Cabela's. He drove a tundra, right? Not, not Jacob. Jacob was the mama's boy. He shot the Bed Bath & Beyond and drove a you know, Mini Cooper. That's what, you know, there was a difference there. And we know that, that the Bible highlights that playing favorites isn't good in any relationship. In any relationship, even we saw with Jacob's wives that he loved Rebecca more than any other, or Isaac loved Rebecca more than any other. He, we saw this motif that's not good to play favorites. And being a father of five, we have uh, Rita and I have five five kiddos. Uh, uh, we try to make this a priority in in our family that we didn't want any of our kids to think that we favored one over the other. And that's a hard thing to do, but this is one of the things that we, we set out with. We, we never wanted to show favoritism to one or the other. Now, here's the thing is that there's no uh, one-size-fits-all in raising kiddos. You have five kids, you're not going to use the same formula for every single kid. Why? Because every single kid is different, right? They all have different personalities. They all have different passions. They all have different needs. You're going to raise them differently according to gender, whether one is a male, whether it's a female. So it's not going to look the same. And yet, that doesn't mean that you favor one or the other. I think the biggest time we, we, we try and, and make sure this doesn't happen is during the Christmas time, right? Is during the Christmas time. We got to buy gifts for our kids, right? And um, the stockings, we want to make sure all, everyone gets, you know, the same, you know, kind of amount of stockings. When gifts come in, we want to make sure they all feel like, hey, they are, they're all getting taken care of. No one's getting a better present than the other one, right? Um, and there might be sometimes where like one kid gets a bigger 
item, uh, you know, like a bike that costs more. So he might only get, you know, three presents and the other ones might get six. But the, we got to say, the, well, the reason why you're only getting three is because you got this big one, right? You know what I'm saying? We're trying to squash and let kids know that we don't favor one or the other. Heck, we even do this with our dogs, right? Who is there to do with our dogs? We got two dogs. And, you know, we don't want to show favoritism to the dogs because, you know, dogs got better, worse attitudes than the kids even do. So if one doesn't get a treat and one other gets a treat or one doesn't go on a walk and one gets to go on the walk, next thing you know, we leave and someone pees in the house, right? <laughs> and so we don't even want to do that with our kids. And so Jacob should have known not to show favoritism towards Joseph. But that's what Jacob knew. And as, as is kind of human nature, you, you model what you know. So if you're a parent in here, or, or, or not even a parent, but you desire to have kids, or, or if you work in a cult, or if you're a boss, just let's squash favoritism because it doesn't lead to anything good. It leads to envy and jealousy. We see that Jacob's love and favoritism of Joseph is highlighted by, by Joseph getting this coat or this robe uh, given to him. Uh, verse 3 says that you know, um, Jacob loved him, and, and he made him a robe of many colors or a coat of many colors. Now, the translation of this robe is kind of different. It might mean a lot of different colors, so it might look like a technicolor jug and had all different kinds of colors, the rainbow over it or something like that. I don't know. Um, or it just meant that this robe has both, both long in sleeves and long in length. Long in sleeves and long in length. Regardless of what it looked like, it, 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 it means this. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of status, that because Jacob gave this to Joseph, it showed the other brothers that Joseph is upper management and you are his laborers. It's a, it's, it's a status symbol. The, the brothers, you get, you, got, you get your clothes from Goodwill, Joseph gets his clothes from Macy's, right? Um, the brothers wore t-shirts and had shorts, and, and Joseph wore a tailored suit, he was favored. And so every time the brothers saw Joseph wearing this robe, wearing this coat or whatnot, it just fueled their hatred. It just fueled their anger, their envy. It deepened it because they knew that he was favored. A couple other quick reasons. One, Joseph, being again the 11th youngest out of the 12, um, got to kind of rule over him. Verse 2, it says that Joseph brought a bad report. So while his brothers are out there slaving and working, Joseph got to stay at home. And then he would go out, and then he'd come back and, and tattletale on his brother. So that didn't go over well. And the main reason why that their hatred went over the top, though, was found in the two dreams in verses 5 through 11. So let's look at those. Verse 5 says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Here is, here is the dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to mine. And his brothers said to him, interpret it correctly. Are you indeed to reign over us, or will you indeed rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now we read this, and we, and we know the end of the story. We know what happens in Egypt. The, the brothers will have to, Joseph goes to the second command of Egypt. His brothers, there's a famine in the land. He's got to come, and Joseph feeds him with wheat that represents some of these sheaves. So we know that this comes to, to pass. But back then, when his brothers would hear this, they would freak out. Because remember, it was the eldest brother that would, would assume the role of the patriarch. When Jacob would die, it would be Reuben. Reuben would be the one in which would take over the family. He would lead the family. It, it, this should have been his dream. And yet it came to Joseph. 
So this was another slap in the face of his brothers. Because Joseph's dream says then, I am going to be king, and I am going to reign over you. I will do the commanding, and you will do the bowing. And you might think at, at one point you're just waiting for the, in the story that, you know, it might be April Fool's, right? Who knows? Like, oh, I'm just kidding, Joseph to his brothers. April Fool's, just kidding. But he doubles down because he gets another dream in verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have had another dream. At one point you're like, Jake, you're like you're, uh, Joseph, dude, just shh. If you have a dream, just don't share it with your brothers. You can, can't you already see they're already angry with you? They're already frustrated with you. They already hate you. Well, I want you to just keep it to yourself, right? But if you're the youngest in the family, how many younger, how many of the youngest in the family raise their hand? We have the youngest is Madison. She's not right here right now, but she will make her presence known. And she's not afraid. This story kind of laughs. I, I kind of laugh at the story of the youngest. We know it's a dream given to by God, but Maddie doesn't need a dream given to by God because she thinks she's going to rule and reign over our family sometimes, right? So anyways. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told him to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mothers and your brothers indeed bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And so this is so outrageous that, that Jacob overhears him telling it to his brothers, and, and he gets to the mess. He says, No, 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 I'm the patriarch. I'm the man. I do the ruling, not you. And yet, what do we see? We see verse 11. After the rebuke, after his brother's hatred, at the end of verse 11 it says, but his father kept the saying in mind. Does that sound familiar? Does that phrase maybe, maybe think, have you think of something else? It should maybe think of Mary in Luke chapter 2, verse 19. When she heard all these amazing things from the angels and the shepherds that, about this little baby that was laying in the manger. And what did she say? She said this, that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And that's what Jacob does. He, he swallows his pride for a little bit. And he says, well, wait, well, well, wait a second. There, there might be some truth to this. Because I know that, that God doesn't work through the cultural norms, right, of giving the eldest brother everything. Because we've seen it twice already where the blessing is passed down to the younger, not to the oldest brother. So Jacob's like, well, I was, I was the younger one. I came out, you know, a little bit after Esau grabbing his, his heel. I was the second twin born. So I'm the youngest one, but I got the blessing. So maybe, maybe this might be true. Maybe, maybe the Lord will go 11 deep in the, in the, in the, uh, on his team to, to give the blessing. And then dreams, dreams back then were kind of a sign that that's how God spoke a lot of times was through dreams. And, and remember, Jacob had a dream, remember, at Bethel, where he went to sleep and he had the dream. And what did he see? He saw the stairway of heaven, right? And that's where the Lord captured his heart. So, so Jacob ponders in his heart, man, like, man, there might be some truth to this. So he pauses and, and he thinks that. Now, all that is kind of secondary. Here's what's highlighted in this section is the hatred by his brothers. It's repeated over and over again. Again, three times. The hatred of his brothers by their envy, their jealousy of Joseph. So, I mean, we already pointed out that, that Jacob was wrong in favoring him, but that doesn't excuse the way in which his brothers reacted. Sure, there might have been some righteous anger. They're like, Dad, that's, that's not fair, you know? Kind of treat us all the same. That's, that's kind of what, what you do. But, but they took it a step further. And it just kept on festering. And what we see is that envy and, and jealousy in the Bible is, is prominent. It's a sin. It's, it's called out. It's, con, it's condemned. And, 
And maybe even a lot of non-Christians know that envy and jealousy, it's wrong. They, they know it as the seven deadliest sins, right? And so we see throughout Scripture, Moses, Solomon, Isaiah, Paul, Jesus, all of them hit and condemn envy. Paul says this in Galatians 5, talking about the sinful nature, the sins that are obvious, right? This is, this is one of the sins where you don't have to praise like, man, I don't know if this is a sin or not, Lord. This is like, it's obvious. He says this in, in verse, chapter 5, verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, fractions, and envy. I mean, Paul w- names it twice. I mean, jealousy and, and envy are, are synonymous, but he points it out as, as two. He, he emphasizes it. This is, this is bad. And so as we read the story of Joseph, many of us might have flashbacks in here. In the sense that, that you were maybe the favored one, or, or maybe you were the one that wasn't favored. Maybe your parents, for whatever reason, didn't favor you. They, they favored your brother. They favored your, your sister. And some of you right now, are, this, this, this story hits home. You're, you're, you're feeling the, the pain and, and bringing back the flashbacks of, of this. You feel the sting of the situation that Joseph finds himself in. But here's the good news. The good news, if you and I are in Christ, if we repent of our sins and we've trusted in Christ, that God has no favorites in the kingdom. We see in Galatians 3, he says there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no male, there's no female, there's no slave, there's no free. No, we are all one in Christ. So if you're in Christ, there is no favoritism. You know that God the Father, the creator of the world, loves you and me equally. But back to envy. What is envy? Envy and jealousy is this. It's the emotion produced when the desire to be the center of attention is not fulfilled. Envy is the emotion produced when the desire to be the center of attention is not fulfilled. And it could be in relationships. It could be in a job situation. It could be in material things, right? James 4 sums it up really good for us. He says this, he says this, you, you desire, but you don't have, so you murder. That's why people murder. They, they desire something that someone else has had, and they don't do it, so they murder. And you're like, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Well, we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are angry with someone, usually that's because of jealousy and envy, and you've murdered them in your heart. So we've all done that. I've, I've murdered a lot of people in my heart, right? None of you, of course. You guys don't get, you know, of course. And he goes on and says, you, you, you covet and you cannot attain, so you what? You, you fight and you quarrel. Here's the thing about envy. We, we all have bowed down to the knee of envy. Uh, every one of us in here has bowed down to the knee of jealousy, we see what others have and we want and we don't have it, so we get angry, we get envious, we get jealous, and we start to fight and quarrel. Uh, envy has gotten all of us. It's, it's, it's ugly. We, we, we know the feeling of envy when we, in jealousy, when it first hits our soul. We, we know that emotion. We know it's, it starts out, you know, as a little spark, but we can feel, feel it build and build and build, right, until finally it explodes in us. We, we know what Joseph's brothers are feeling right now, don't we? So this morning, if you're, if you're battling that right now, envy, jealousy, all of a sudden you're starting to feel this, this hatred burn for, maybe it's someone in here, maybe it's someone in your, in your life group, uh, maybe it's someone in your job, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a father, maybe it's a mother, maybe it's a grandparent, I don't, whatever it may be, if you start to feel the, the sin of envy and jealousy and this hatred start to come, uh, ask the Spirit of God that indwells you to, to kill it, to put it to death. 
when, 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 when I start getting bombarded by envy and jealousy, when I start to go down that path, I, I use what's called a mechanism or a couple verses that kind of help me like, get back on track, get my eyes off of myself being the center of my universe and putting my eyes on Jesus to rule and reign on my heart. And one of those is John chapter 3, verse 30, where John the Baptist says this, he must increase in what? I must decrease. That, that helps me get my mind right, my soul right. It helps me see others correctly. It's not, it's not about me. It's about what the Lord is doing. So get your eyes off of you, Aaron, and let me work in this situation. Because as we know, envy never stays quiet if, it, if it's not dealt with. One said it's like a ticking time bomb waiting to detonate. And again, it's a great description because we know how that feels. So as we look at this section of Scripture, uh, the, the, the real main point for us to take away is, man, kill envy. Kill envy. Kill jealousy. <clears throat> By looking to Jesus and making sure He is on the throne. That takes us to our second point. The individual, the invisible, sorry, the not individual, the invisible hand leading to Egypt. The invisible hand leading to Egypt, verses 12 through 36. And again, over the next several weeks, Moses gives us a number of details that highlights the, the invisible hand that the Lord God brings about his will to fulfill the dreams given to Joseph. We see in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 37, we see that Joseph uh, is at home with daddy. He's probably playing Xbox or something while his brothers are out shepherding the flock 50 miles away, right? They're working. They're out in the hot sun. They're stinking like sheep. They're doing all that while Joseph's at home. And Jacob gets this bright idea. Hey, let's help family dynamics. I'm going to send the youngest out to bring back a report, right? And we know that's not going to go over well because it didn't go over well the first time. But Joseph agrees. Here am I. Send me. And so Joseph goes and but he can't find them. Again, 50 miles, Shechem's about 50 miles north of where they're at. They're in the promised land, but, but uh, Jacob sends his sons north about 50 miles or so um, to feed the sheep. And, and Joseph can't find them. And he's wandering around, you know, Shechem looking for his brothers and looking for the flock. Then all of a sudden he runs into this man, verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where are they pasturing? Where are they pasturing their flocks? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Dothan's about another 15 miles from Shechem. And so here we see, again, God's invisible hand guiding this individual to Joseph. Because if he didn't, Joseph would have never found his brothers. But he does. And this is, a, this is a great point that I want you guys to think about this week. I want you to think and contemplate as you leave here. And write this. Think about this. Think about the invisible hand of the Lord doing this in your life. Think about how the Lord has done this in your life. How He has put individuals in certain seasons at the right time in your life to get you through a situation. Think about how He has done that. Putting individuals in your path as you're wondering, like trying to figure something out, the Lord sends you somebody to give you direction at just the right time. You know, a lot of times this happens on Sunday mornings at a Sunday gathering. 
when you come, when I've come, I don't know how many times over the course, I wish I had a, you know, a dollar for every time I heard this, but how many times have you heard or how many times have you experienced when you walked into a Sunday gathering and you heard the message when the word preached and you're like, man, are you preaching it to me? Right? Anyone in here? This happens more often than not. And so this is one of the main ways in which the invisible hand of God works is that Sunday gatherings, the word preached, hits you right where you're at. It gives you uh, the directions and needed to get you through that situation. So that's one way. But out, outside of these walls, I've had a number of individuals that have, have been that for me, that the Lord popped into my life for a season at the right time, again, to set, help set the trajectory for me to, to navigate the issues of life. I, when I got sent away to play baseball in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, I, I got sent. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know I was going. I was a little nervous, you know. You, you go to play somewhere, you don't know anyone, and, and, and you're nervous, and you're, you're going to a, a foreign land. And when I got there, I was just, you know, I found my locker, but I just started wandering through the stadium, you know, trying like, man, what's going to happen? Then all of a sudden, this guy comes up to me and introduces himself. His name's Tom. Well, Tom ended up being the, the chaplain for the baseball team for the next two years. He would, he would guide me. He would direct me. He helped me um, get my feet settled for the next couple years and, and helped me walk through a number of issues as a young man. So who has that been for you? Think about that this week and thank the Lord for the Lord's putting that person in your life at just the right moment. Here's another awesome thought. Maybe the Lord will use you, maybe the Lord will use you in His providence as a means of grace to someone else. Maybe the Lord will use you as the one who found Joseph wandering. Maybe the Lord will use you as the one who can take the gospel or wisdom from the Lord or encouraging word to help individuals get back on the path of wherever the Lord wants to take them. What an incredible thought that is. So we see that this man, just just this random event that Joseph's wandering and some guy shows up. We don't even know who this guy is, but what does he do? He puts him on the right path so Joseph can find his brothers. And so Joseph finds his brothers. And when, he, when, when his brothers see Joseph coming, man, they stop working. They're like, Joseph, that's, right, that's like the prodigal son, right? Let's, let's party, right? That's their reaction. No, no. Verse 18 they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. That's some of the most evil words in all the Scripture. Their brothers conspired against to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Let's see if his dreams, let's put his dreams to the test. Just as like I said a couple minutes ago, that hatred fueled by envy sits as a ticking time bomb waiting for detonation. And all it took for detonation with his brothers is to see Joseph coming again in his robe. I want you to, I mean, think about this for a second. Eleven or ten out of the eleven brothers sign off on this, agree to this. Yeah, let's, let's, let's kill him. But Reuben, the oldest, the one who, you know, is kind of held responsible for his brothers, all of his brothers, all of his safety, you would think his motive is to have compassion on Joseph. It's like, no, let's not, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a pit. And then he wanted to save him later. Well, what is the motivation to save him? Was it because he cared about Joseph? I don't think so. It said, because earlier it said all of his brothers hate him. I think it's so he could save face with his daddy. So maybe his daddy would, would look on Reuben and say like, hey, 
Hiram, you did a great job. All your other brothers wanted to kill him, but you stepped up and you were the man. That shows leadership. That shows potential. I'm going to pass the blessing on to you. That might have been his motivation. We see in verse 22 that the brothers agree to it. They don't kill him. They throw him into this pit. And then they agree to what? Before they, well, as they throw him in the pit, they, they strip him. And I'm sure they, they, they probably got a couple, you know, couple body blows in there too, right? A couple cheap punches. Who knows what else they did? Probably mocking him a little bit. And they threw him into the pit. And what's interesting is we don't have any, any account of Joseph saying anything or fighting back. I mean, he was the younger one. He would have been smaller in stature, et cetera. But um, his brothers are the aggressors, and he's, and he's taking it, so to speak. Of course, you know, 11 against 1 is not going to be good. So, But the, verse 25 gives one of those shocking details of what happens next. What, what does verse 25 say? It just says, then they sat down to eat. After they stripped their brother of their clothes, after they beat him, Again, they strip him basic naked and they throw him in a the pit. They just sit down and have a sandwich. Isn't that crazy? You see the, the wickedness of their hearts. It doesn't even phase them. Reuben is probably gone. He's probably somewhere with the, the flock. So he's not around after, he, after they do what they do. But then all of a sudden Judah comes and has this bright idea. Well, not to kill Joseph. Because if we kill him, that doesn't, we don't get any profit from it. Let's at least make a little bit of cabbage from this. Let's make a little bit of coin, right? Let's just sell him. And so he sells them. And that's what they do. In verse 28, they sell Joseph to the Midianites, these traders heading for, for Egypt. And the going rate was 20 shekels, shekels of silver. That was the kind of the going rate back in this culture um, for a teenage slave boy, which would Joseph would have been. And they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. We see that Reuben comes back and it's too late to save Joseph because he's, he's been gone, so he can't save him. And then we see in verse 29 through 35 that the boys have to make up a story to tell their father now. So what do they do? They, they take his coat, they tear it up, they dip it in goat's blood, and then they take it to their dad. And listen to what they say. Dad, quote, paraphrasing, uh, we found this coat on the road. This, is this Jacob's? I mean, is this Joseph's coat? Is this Joseph's robe? Uh, it is. Well, look, I guess he got eaten by a wild animal then. And of course, Jacob's response is expected as his favorite son dies with intense grief and sorrow. But again, his brothers trick Jacob. Now, thinking back to, to Jacob's life, when you hear the word, you know, a trick, robe, goat, does that bring any, any things into remembrance? Might bring back Jacob used those same things to trick Isaac for the blessing. So what we see here is maybe a little reaping what you sow. But anyways, all this is happening. Joseph, again, is with the Midianites. They show up in uh, Egypt, and he's on the slave market, and he's sold to this man named Potiphar. Potiphar, they says, is the captain of Egypt's army. So we see how Joseph, through all these events, gets to Egypt. Again, the Lord working through all these little decisions made by fathers and brothers and some stranger to get Joseph to this. Again, just what, what we want to see is what happens to Joseph is just flat-out evil, just flat-out wickedness. And yet, we have the, 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 the goodness of God to look back on the story because we know what happens to Joseph. So maybe it doesn't hit us as hard as it should have when we first read this. But 
But what we see is, again, we know, the, again, the Lord's God's invisible hand working for a greater purpose through the hatred of his brothers. And so what I want to do is finish this story by, by looking how Joseph's story points us to Jesus. And I'm going to use one pastor who summarized it this way. This is just in this account alone, just, just, just think how Joseph's story links us and connects us to Jesus. He says, just like Joseph, Jesus was his father's beloved son, unique, exalted, favored. And the people, the brothers that couldn't handle that fact, they hated him. In fact, the more good that Jesus would do, uh, the harder the religious leaders tried to kill him. Just like Joseph's brothers, we read that the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3 immediately counseled on how they might kill Jesus, just like his brothers did when they saw him coming. In Mark chapter 15, it says that Pilate knew that it was out of the envy of the chief priests that handed Jesus over to them. So it was jealousy, envy was the motivation to kill him. Just like uh, Jesus was sold for silver, uh, just like Joseph was sold for silver, Jesus was sold for silver. Just like Joseph, uh, Jesus was ganged up on, he was beaten, he was stripped of his robe and his clothes to the point of being almost naked. Just as Joseph was an innocent sufferer and remained silent, again, there's no words saying that Joseph said anything, who, as we'll see throughout the story, didn't give in to the mentality of victimhood. So Jesus was truly innocent uh, sufferer who willingly laid down his life. And then we also see the pain of the father. We also see the pain of the father. In Jacob, we see a picture of a dad losing a son. The trauma is, is obviously gut-wrenching. Any parent who has ever uh, had that moment when they thought that they were losing a child knows this horror. And at the cross, God the Father and God the Son's fellowship was broken as the perfect son became sin and the father turned his face away. So these are all, all connecting points of Joseph's story and the Jesus story. And, and this is what we know. We know that, we know that Joseph will be exalted to the second most powerful position in Egypt and he will, he will rescue, he will restore, and he will redeem his family. They will be reunited and, and love and grace and mercy and restoration will be given, but this is foreshadowing a greater story. It, it, this story, Joseph's story, is the point to a, a greater rescue, a greater restoration, a greater redemption, and that is Jesus saving the world. That is Jesus saving you and me. So the question us this morning is, is this the redemption that you have experienced? Is this the restoration that you have experienced? Is this a rescue that you have experienced? Like I said, I know that there's several of you walking through some, some tough times right now. You're going through an incredibly difficult trial, valley. Our family is walking through some in, incredibly difficult times right now. And, and we have sorrow, and there's grief, and there's mourning, and there's, there's, there's some, not a hopelessness, but you know the feeling. It's like, man, there's a feeling of uncertainty. And, and, and there's a reason why we're studying this passage of Scripture right now. There's a reason why I'm studying this passage of Scripture right now for my own soul. Because the story of, Joyce, again, Joseph points us to Jesus. And it points us to His rescue. It points us to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. He's accomplished our salvation. He's accomplished our redemption. If you and I are in Christ, then we know that we can have the assurance that God is with us in this deep trial. He is with us in this valley. He will, like Joseph, he will work it out for our good. Even though as Joseph was in the pit, I'm sure he wasn't thinking like, oh God, just working this out for my good. He's probably thinking like, what the heck? 
My brothers hate me. They want to kill me. They just threw me in here. What is going on? We can have the assurance that God is with us. And the second promise on that is that we know, as I just said, that God will end up using this situation, this circumstance, this trial that's happening to you, that's happening to me, it will happen for our good. And we'll look back years later as I'm, you know, three years away from a 50-burger. I'm going to look back and I've seen the Lord do this and through the trials, I don't understand in them, but when I look back, I see God's invisible hand working and moving it for my good. So the question is, do you have that insurance this morning? Do you have that hope this morning? Is that the thing that you are holding on to in your trial, in your valley? We're not holding on to Joseph. We're holding on to Jesus because Jesus points us, because Joseph points us to Jesus. I hope you have that assurance. And if you don't have that insurance, you can have it this morning. You can have it this morning. You, you can know for sure that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, He stepped out of heaven and He died on the cross for, for sin, for, for your sin, for your envy, for your jealousy, for my sin, for my hatred. He died on the cross and made payment that we should have paid, but we couldn't pay. He, he stepped in. He was our substitute. He took on the, the, the punishment due for you and me. He died. He was separated for the Father. The Father turned His face away. The wrath of God was poured out on him for your sake and my sake. And then three days later, he rose again and he lives. And now he's asking you to, to, to be a child of his, a child of the king. And you do that through repentance and faith. And when you do that, you can have the assurance that no matter whether you're on green pastures and walking in blessing or whether you're in the valley, that the Lord is with you. And he's working out these things for his glory and for your joy. That's what the story of Joseph is going to tell us for the next number of weeks. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Joseph. And thank you for the story that Joseph's life points us to Jesus and his redemption. Joseph's life points us to the picture that that we can live with assurance that no matter what circumstance we are in, that you are with us. Lord, I pray that um, as we walk out those doors, that we would meditate, that we would uh, think deeply about the truths that we heard this morning. And not only keep them to ourselves, but then, then dialogue with our, with our family, with, with our kids, and dialogue with our coworkers, dialogue with those in our circles of influence where we live, work, and play. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.